I love that video. So good. So good. Good morning. I know we have the time change. I know Matt's tired. Maybe one other one might be, but I'm here to preach this morning. I don't care that there's two of you or a hundred of us. I don't care if everybody's sleeping in. I don't care if they're out hiking, fishing, whatever they're doing. I've spent some time with Jesus in the last week, and I feel like he has something for us. And let me tell you, it has been a week from hell. I mean, if it could happen in our house, it has happened. I woke up, the hot water heater is blowing all over the garage in the morning. I tried to cut my finger off. I am so dangerous, I can't put chips in a bag without hurting myself. But I try to slice that off. My wife has had a fever throughout the week. She never gets sick, works in the ER, and decided this, this would be the week she gets sick. My throat is hurting. My chest is burning. And I think Satan's quaking a little bit. And I'm okay with that because it's not about me. It's not about what's going on in my life. I have worshiped. I have spent time with God. And our God is amazing. And, and we are going to dive into the word this morning. Now, we've been going through the book of Acts been talking about some powerful things. Mark has just uh, been, been sharing the Word of God. And, and the book of Acts, how timely. I mean, we did that mini-series on discipleship and then just jumped right into what are we supposed to be and what are we supposed to do as the church. And uh, we've looked at just some, some great themes. We've talked about being clothed in the Spirit. And if you get nothing else, please just take that with you this morning. You cannot live the life. You cannot be the church. You cannot be the man, the woman the son, the daughter that God has called you to be without the Holy Spirit. It is impossible. You will not be able to succeed. The things of this life will beat you down. You will be limited in your own effort. We need the Holy Spirit. So I'm thankful for that clear teaching. We've also talked a lot about moving beyond the superficial and the surface relationships into deeper, meaningful, authentic sharing your life with each other discipleship, which is what the church is all about. We're going to touch on that a little bit again this morning because that theme runs throughout not just Acts, but throughout the church, throughout Scripture. You read it in all of Paul's letters and the epistles. Our need to be authentic, to be real. You gain nothing by showing up here on Sunday morning and pretending that things are okay. Doesn't doesn't affect your life in a positive way at all. And then last week, of course, he talked about hypocrisy. I'm glad he covered that one. Uh, so I didn't have to get that topic. But uh, we, we looked at the lives of Barnabas and Ananias and just uh, how hypocrisy entered its way into the church. And it sets us up really for a beautiful section we're getting in today. We're actually in Acts 6 and 7, which is a lot of text. We're not going to read it all. We're not going to go through verse by verse. But it sets us up for what I think is a continuation of what's been happening in the early church and what we face and deal with today in America, in Anderson, South Carolina, at Hope Fellowship, some of the same struggles. What struck me as being so powerful as Mark preached on hypocrisy last week was that this church was doing everything that we would say, as you look at Scripture, what a church should be. They were worshiping together. They were sharing selflessly with one another. They were taking communion and having fellowship on a regular basis. They were having dinner in each other's house, and they were praying and devoting themselves, it says, to Scripture and to prayer. I mean, they were, they were doing what we think church should be all about and what everyone always reverts back. Oh, if we were Acts 2, if we were Acts 2. And in the middle of that, hypocrisy raises its ugly head. And so as we continue this morning, I... I wrote title after title after title, and I just kept coming up with weird things. And this might seem weird to you too, but I thought it just fit perfectly. Satan's sinister strategy versus God's glorious goal. 
Satan's sinister strategy. You may not realize this, and maybe you do to a degree, but Satan has a specific strategy and plan in mind, not just for the church, but for every single individual under the sound of my voice this morning. Please be aware of this. Satan and his demonic forces of darkness have a plan for you and for your life. Are you aware of that reality? I think sometimes we miss out on on that just foundational truth that Scripture teaches us about our enemy, and we just kind of get blinded and numb. We begin to live our life, and we get wrapped up into the details of this world and our struggles and the highs and the lows, and we miss out on the reality that Satan has a strategy for you and for me just as much as God has a glorious goal in mind. And unfortunately... What we don't realize is that he doesn't take time off. Satan works constantly. I don't care if you're sleeping or if you're awake. I don't care if you got your arms up praising Jesus or you're walking into your job first thing in the week. He is actively working. And he's got two goals. One, he wants to prevent every man and woman that's ever been born from being rescued. He wants to keep them from knowing about the grace and the love and the forgiveness that is available to them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, if someone has embraced that rescue and has chosen Christ as Christ has chosen them, his next goal is quite simple, to make you as ineffective as possible. To crush you, destroy you, to get you so wrapped up in living life that you do nothing for the kingdom of God. Those are his two, two strategies. Quite simple, he's been doing the same thing since the beginning of time, and he continues to do it today, day in and day out, and day in and day out. And unfortunately, because of culture and because of our sensitivity, we can look at Satan as this colorful, you know, he's, he's the red guy with the little horns and a pitchfork and a red cape, and he just goes around poking Christians every once in a while. Or he might sit up on the shoulder and whisper to us, and we lose sight of the fact that he is evil, that he is sinister, that he is dark, that he is the most vilest of everything your mind could possibly comprehend. He is the father of that darkness. I like how Priscilla Shire said it when talking about him. She said, the devil doesn't come at you with a pitchfork and a red cape. He comes at you disguised as everything that you desire. Everything that you desire. So I want to start by telling you this your enemy your enemy is not each other do you know that do you know that look around you look around you look at each other i don't care how few are here look at each other no one in this room is your enemy do you really know that your enemy is not the man that stole your wife's attention Your enemy is not the man that feeds your addiction. Your enemy is not the woman that mistreated your kids. Your enemy is not the person that has abused you and used you and kicked you to the curb. Your enemy is not the justice system. Your enemy is not the church. Your enemy is not individuals. Your enemy is Satan. And he desires to crush you. There's a reason in Scripture. It's, I haven't even got to Acts yet. There's a reason in Ephesians it says that he goes around, or in Peter rather, goes around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. He doesn't want to just trip you up. 
He doesn't want to cause you to have just a little snag in your day and all your schedules and convenience. He wants to devour you. But God has other things in mind. Are you excited about that? I am. I am so excited. So let's jump right in. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses. I've got a couple points I want to make to you. First couple points will probably go quick. I don't know. The Spirit might cause me to linger, and if He does, I'm okay with it. 6 1. Now, in these days, this is a continuation. Remember what Mark talked about last week with Barnabas and Annas? The church was flourishing, it was growing because of the work and the boldness of the message. In the gospel, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. He's talking about how everyone brought everything together and they shared. Remember that? Meeting each other's needs. And one of the things the church did is they went to the widows of the congregation and of the community and they fed them and they gave to them whatever their need might be, a new garment or food for the day, whatever their issue was. And This group comes and they complain because their section of widows were being neglected. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, referring to the apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people." Now, on the surface, you might read that and say, I don't see Satan working. I don't see his name mentioned. I don't see his strategy. Oh, I'm going to point him out to you. The first thing Satan does, his first strategy is to cause division in the church. Can I get an amen right there? If you've been around church long enough, you know there will be division. As long as you stay in this room, there are going to be things that come along that divide us. And so what I think of first, when I think of his strategy of division in the church It reminds me of this beautiful truth that authentic church, authentic discipleship is going to be messy. Are you ready for the mess? Don't sit back and think, well, man, if we just follow what Mark's been teaching in Acts and we love one another and we share our goods and we're all just patting each other on the back and I'm praying for you, brother, and oh, sister, God has just got his hand on you that it's going to be good and there's going to be no division. No, it is going to get messy quick. The text starts off by telling us when the disciples were increasing, as God is blessing, Satan says, perfect opportunity for division. It says a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Mark it down. If you're in the body of Christ, if you attend a church, which you should long enough, there will be complaining. 
There will be griping. It has gone on since the days of Moses in the wilderness. You get a group of followers together. Someone's feelings are going to get hurt. Someone's not going to like how the bread tastes at communion. Someone's going to think we have wine instead of grape juice. Someone's going to complain because we got words on a screen and not in a book. Someone's going to complain because the pastor wore a suit coat one Sunday and next Sunday he didn't. We're going to complain about stuff. How come Rick got donuts from Walmart and not Dunkin' Donuts? We always find a reason, right? There's always something to complain about. And the Bible says their complaint arose over people that were getting neglected. Over feelings that were hurt. How many times have you ever been hurt in the church? I'll put both hands up. How many times have I hurt somebody in the church? If I could, I'd put both feet up at the same time. Neglect. Ah, they didn't even talk to me. They didn't even give me the time of day. They don't care. This church is just like every other church. Satan's got a goal in mind, and it is to divide the body of Christ. It makes me think of my own personal family. I uh, grew up with three older sisters, which makes me the most specialist child of all the baby right and everyone thinks mom caters to me and dad even get you know you babied him since he was a baby well of course because i'm me and i deserve that now my sisters all being old so i'm going to be 45 this year so you know we're all we're all mature adults now right you get us together we we come together about once every year every two years and that's enough really but when when we get together it starts off just being sweet fellowship I mean, we are laughing, we are sharing. So you remember that time Dad used to bring home the banana boxes and we made race cars out of those things and we played in those things for days. That was so much fun. You stick around long enough in my family, by about afternoon nap time, we are at each other's throats. I mean, it is crazy. I've got the one sister who's the peacekeeper. She just likes everything to be calm and let's all just get along. No, God is love. We're all love, you know, and that's her role. And that makes us appreciate her even more. And then you've got the sister that's the antagonizer. Now, in case they're watching this, I'm just calling them the sisters. But you've got the one that's the, you know, she stirs the pot a little bit and jumps in when it's comfortable and then jumps back out and says, uh, what about them? You know, that sister, you got me who's just, I'm just here to love. I just want to get along, but inevitably I can't bite my own tongue, and then I get frustrated and jump in, and, you know, it's just, it's just a hot mess. It's a hot mess, and usually by the end of the night, somebody is crying. That's when you know family's together, someone's crying, someone's leaving upset, someone's angry, and then the next morning we get up and we do it all over again. That's what family does. That's what the church does. We get together and, oh, it's so good. It's so good. It was just awesome worshiping with you this morning. Then next week, I can't even believe I sent them a text. They never even responded to me. I called Mark's office three times, and you know what? He never returned my phone call. Right? And we feel neglected. We feel like our voice isn't being heard. We feel like we're left out and we begin to complain. We begin to grumble. And what do we do? We leave and we go and we experience the same thing at another church down the road. Over and over and over again. If you're looking for the perfect church, as we say, you're not going to find it. Stick around. 
that church will be imperfect too because you're there. That's just how it works. I can't tell you how many times I've said something preaching the word of God where I've made a mistake. I've said something that was inappropriate. I had to get up the following week and apologize. Why? Because we are people and we're jacked up and, and we make mistakes. And Satan loves to take advantage of that. So you got these two groups in the church, the Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews. They were the ones that were more devout and devoted to their faith and the scriptures. And they have been immersed in it from the birth of, of their forefathers. And then you have the Hellenists who were more Greek culture minded. And they, they were influenced by the Roman Empire. And they tended to, to look at each other with that crooked eye a little bit. You know, the Hebrews, when they looked at the Hellenists, they thought of them as just the unspiritual group they were compromisers they just kind of let everything go and didn't stick to the law and the rules and then the Hellenists they looked at the Hebrews and thought well they're nothing but a bunch of holier than thou's and they try and act like they got it all together it's kind of like if you get the Baptists and in the Methodists together or the non-denominational or the whatever breed you are you get them together and then it's like oh yeah well they don't do this and, and this is the issue. As I was reading the text, and, and I believe this is true, as you read into it, what we see is that the Hellenists, they were right in their heart. Their widows were being neglected. They were right. They had a reason to say, hey, we got to do something about this. And at the same time, the Hebrews, they were right in their facts. As you begin to read through the text and the whole of Acts and what was happening, both were right. There, there was no necessarily any wrongness here, but it was the perfect ingredients for Satan to just kind of stick his foot in there and say, let's, let's get some complaining going on. Satan loves to use an unintentional wrong to bring a conflict. One of the hardest things you can do is assume the best about someone. Even when facts prove otherwise. It's so hard to assume that mm, I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they love me unconditionally the way my Father does in heaven. Why? Because things hurt. Things affect us. We have feelings. God, God wired us to have feelings and to have emotions and to have all these things. And how many times has Satan used an unintentional wrong to bring about a conflict? And his goal, again, keep in mind, if you know Christ, his goal is to keep you ineffective. Because if you're focused on who hurts you and why life is wrong and how things aren't fair and why you're being neglected. If that is your focus, I promise you, you will be ineffective for the kingdom of God. You will not experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're wrapped up in the emotions of this world. You don't think Christ was ever neglected? You don't think he was ever kicked to the curb and despised and mistreated? You don't think people talked about him behind his back? You don't think things happened to him that weren't fair? Constantly. And what did he do? He loved. And he says, as I have loved you, love each other. That is how we defeat the strategy of Satan. The second thing he does is he distracts leadership. Oh, he loves this one. He loves this one. And, and maybe, you know, Mark and I didn't talk. We never talk about Travis. I want you to preach anything. So I'm going to say some things about Mark. He's not here. I don't care. I'm going to say him anyway. He loves me. He trusts me. We're both trusting God. So hopefully it'll be good. So feel free to run back and tell Mark I said these things. Ain't going to phase my sleep habits one bit. He loves distracting leadership. Look what happens in the text. The 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word. And spending time in prayer to serve tables. Don't jump ahead of me. Stay with me, okay? 
It's wrong, not a sin. It's wrong to spend time chasing things that God has not called you to be and to do. Again, the enemy's goal is to distract you, to get leadership focused on things they should not be focused on. God never called anyone to be everything in the church. I watched my dad try and do this for 40 years in the state of Alaska. I watched him go up, well, 30, 35 years. I watched him move up there with my family, start a church on his own, and be a one-man show until his health robbed him of the ability to do ministry anymore, and he had to resign and leave the state. Because he tried to be everything for everybody. God did not call ministers of the Word of God to be everything for everyone. A pastor should not have his time consumed in tasks that are essentially equated equated to serving tables, but there's something wrong with a pastor who considers serving tables beneath him. Let me tell you a little bit something about Pastor Mark. Most pastors, if they had someone like me fill in for them, they would be sitting in the pew analyzing everything that comes out and making sure their little kingdom is protected and making sure the the guy that's up there replacing him isn't saying something he shouldn't say. You know what Mark did last time I preached? He went to the children's ministry and volunteered as a helper to work with little kids. That's your pastor. He shouldn't spend his time doing that, but that task should not be beneath him. Can I just challenge you with something this morning? Stop calling the office expecting Pastor Mark or Pastor Matt or Pastor whoever the pastors are to do everything for you. Their job, their focus should be spending time in the Word of God and in prayer for you and me. Woo! Got quiet up in here now. He didn't know I was going to say that. I'm going to offer it here. Well, that's what my pastor's there for. That's why I give the tithe. Sorry, that's wrong. It's not biblical. The pastor's job should be to preach the word and pray for the congregation. God will raise up other men, and this is where we need to get off our butts and stand up and say, I can counsel. I can minister. I can volunteer. I can set up. I can lead. I can come alongside. That's our job. Too many pastors burned out, fried, tired. I've been telling Mark for months now, you need to take a sabbatical. You you need to take a rest. Why? Because if my pastor ain't charged up, I ain't going to hear it on Sunday, and I want him charged. Satan loves to distract leadership. Just go to another meeting. Oversee the worship ministry. You need to have an approval on every song. Oh, you need to know what games Pastor Matt's got organized. We need to plan those out. Make sure you run those by the pastor. That doesn't happen here. Thank God that doesn't happen here. But how often is leadership distracted? Because we look at them as they're our Savior instead of Jesus Christ. And if you don't think Satan wants to use this strategy, you are crazy. I have seen so many churches split because of this. Because what happens? When a pastor starts doing everything, a pastor begins to set themselves up as being the Savior. And things you think you would never do, you do. Which is part, not only, but part of the reason I fell as a pastor years ago. Part of the reason I committed sin and adultery and all of the things that took me out of ministry was because I was trying to be everything for everybody. That is not God's calling or purpose on any one man or woman. Amen, that's good preaching. Yes, I know. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase 
So look what happens. They do things the right way. The word of God continues to increase. The number of disciples multiplies again greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's not a coincidence that God put that in there. This isn't a message that just resonated with the poor and with the broken, with downcast. The message of the gospel penetrates to the greatest of hearts, down to the weakest of hearts. When we do things the right way. And what I love about this text, what we see happening is Satan's strategy. He tries something, he fails. He tries something, he fails. And then we come to the third and final strategy, and that is the devastation of life. One of the most daunting strategies Satan will use is to make it personal with you. He will do whatever he can to devastate and wreck your life. If that's what it means to make you ineffective, then that's what he will attempt to do. Notice verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue, and I'll just skip down a little bit, they then rose up and disputed with Stephen. Some of the things you can discover about Stephen if you read this text, he was a man of a good reputation. He was a servant. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom, full of faith, grace, power, boldness. If you think just because spiritually you're doing everything right, Satan's not going to come at you and try and crush you and take your life, you are crazy. Satan will do everything he can to destroy you, and to devastate you. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they they grabbed Stephen and take him into the high priest's presence and say, Hey, this guy is doing just what Jesus did. He's spreading lies. He's blasphemous. He's, he's just operating outside the spectrum of what a Christian is supposed to do. And what we see the opponents of Stephen doing is when they can't win with the truth, because Scripture will always win the day, they begin to lie and try and shape popular opinion. God forbid that Hope Fellowship ever become a church that makes decisions based on popular opinion. Can I challenge you? Don't make your decisions in life based on what's popular or on what's widely accepted. So many people today are willing to take truth, willing to take scripture, willing to take the word of God and twist it and shape it and manipulate it and swell all kinds of popular opinion around themselves to make it sound good, to make it feel good, and to shape how people should live their lives. And if you're not careful, you will so easily be swept along by popular opinion. There's only one opinion that should matter, and that's the word of God. The word of God alone is truth. When someone tells you something about how you should live your life, 
about what's right or wrong when it comes to morality, when it comes to values. Your decision, whether you understand it fully or not, should always be anchored in the Word of God. If you don't grasp it by faith, you should say, I may not fully understand how it works, but I know God said it in His Word, and that's enough, and I'll believe it and I'll follow it, even if I don't get it until the day I die, because God's Word alone is truth. (laughs) I love what happens next. So they bring Stephen before the council. It's as if God just ordained this beautiful moment because right before the council, the first question the high priest says is, so, are these things so? Now why is that beautiful? Because he just set Stephen up to let both cannons loose and preach the gospel. I can almost see Stephen like, Sweet. Well, let me tell you if these things are so. So what does Stephen do? He starts with Abraham. He goes all the way back in Scripture to Abraham and literally walks them through the entire Torah. He goes to the Old Testament and starts just preaching at them about Abraham about Jacob, about Joseph, about Moses, about David, about Solomon, about the prophets. It was like, you're going to give me an opportunity. This might be the only one I get. So hang on, here we go. And he just unloads. And I want to read from you out of the message translation, just, just so you can grasp the weight of how he concludes his sermon. The boldness that is in this man. How I long to be a man of boldness Like Stephen, look what it says in 51 through 53. And you, he's talking now directly to the high priest and to the council and the crowd that swept them up. You continue, you're so bullheaded. Calluses on your heart, flaps on your ears. You deliberately ignore the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed everyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one. And you've kept up the family tradition, you traitors and murderers. All of you, you had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. At that point, the Bible says, they went wild. A rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. Essentially what the actual text is, they begin to grind their teeth and gnash. The same language Jesus says happens when people are cast into outer darkness. There was such visceral hate, such disgust, such anger, such rage at Stephen. They literally could not control themselves. And it ended by saying, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, hardly even noticed them. Instead, he only had eyes for God. What a man. What a man. That he would allow the Holy Spirit to influence him so much that he would be so obedient to Christ. The more obedient we are, the greater the intimacy of the Holy Spirit and the greater the filling and intimacy of the Holy Spirit, the more radical the works of God And here's this crowd just full of venom, eager to rip the very flesh from Stephen's body. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold! I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, oh, catch this. Stephen mimics his own Savior, Jesus Christ's words on the cross. As they're stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cries with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and died. The only time you'll ever see in Scripture Jesus Christ standing by his throne in heaven. Every other instance, he's sitting and ruling and reigning. There's something in my spirit that tells me when he saw the boldness of Stephen and knew what the crowd was about to do, he stood up and said, that's my son. That's my son. He's unashamed and he's willing to give his life. Even if they reject it, even if they kill him, even if Satan's strategy is to destroy him, I'm going to win the day. Can you imagine Stephen seeing him? Hears nothing, sees nothing. Father, whatever happens, forgive them. And he falls asleep and wakes up in the arms of Christ. What a man. We know Father honors his prayer. Why? Because the man that was in charge of the execution, Saul, would be the one that changed to Paul and would radically, radically spread the gospel throughout the world. What a prayer. What a man. See, Satan has a strategy, but God's glorious goal prevails. God's goal is for the gospel to be preached throughout the world, for people to come to rescue and repentance. For our focus to be on the kingdom and not on the things of this life. And whether we successful or unsuccessful as human beings in this world, God's goal will win in the end. Satan has already lost. He is defeated. He thought in crushing Jesus on the cross, he had the same strategy. I will defeat the Son of God once and for all. Guess what? Wrong! Three days later, he rose from the tomb. He thought, I will crush this movement of Christianity. I will make Stephen their first martyr and this will send fear into everyone and they'll stop. Wrong! The blood of the saints only fueled the kingdom of God. If you look historically after A.D. 50, just 30 years after the life of Christ, 20 to 30 years, Rome had Christianity put on the imperial list of illicit sex. After A.D. 64, it was declared to be illegal. You could not be a Christian after the year of A.D. 64 without violating the law. By A.D. 325, fast forward roughly 300 years, estimated 7 million individuals were Christians. You can't outlaw Jesus. In addition to 7 million being Christians, it's estimated by that point in time over 2 million Men and women, boys and girls, gave their lives as martyrs for the kingdom of God. Two million in 300 years. Historians today, if you research it and read into it, they will tell us there have been more martyrs in the 20th century alone that outnumber all the previous 19th centuries combined. What Satan thought 
was the ultimate strategy ended up being his ultimate defeat. God used the ultimate sacrifice of Stephen to spread the word. Satan failed. Satan lost. The name of Jesus lives on. It lives on. You go anywhere in this community, I guarantee you, if you mention the name of Jesus, they will know the name. They may not know him personally, but they will know the name. When we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we love radically, when we live in unity with one another, when we work through conflict, when we love in spite of division opportunities, when we boldly live in love and declare with our dying breath like Stephen did, Lord, don't hold this against them. Satan will lose. I guarantee you he has lost because Christ has won. We're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and I close with this. If you read this, many people call that the chapter of faith, the heroes of the faith. And Jesus, through the text, goes through and highlights these individuals that by faith lived a certain life. And when you get to the end of that book, he goes into those that were martyred, those that gave their life. He said some were sawn in half. Some were desolate and sent all over the wasteland. Some were ran through. And he goes on and describes the death of some of these people. And I love the phrase he uses. He says, these people were too good for this world. We have it so easy as Americans. We have it so easy. We we don't even fear a fine, much less putting our neck on the block for the sake of the gospel. We, we, we have lost what it means to give your life for the gospel. You know what they used to do in the Roman Colosseums, what the emperor used to do? His favorite way of celebrating his games of executing Christians, one of his favorite methods was he would round up as many Christian virgins as he could, young teenagers, young people, and he would dip them in tar and put them on post around his arena and light them, and they would be his human candles for the evening. And this happened day after day after day. These games would last for months and months and months. And people would celebrate it. And Satan would dance. And he would proclaim to the world and to Rome and to everyone, look, I'm winning. Christ said, no, you're not. You can't do anything without my approval. We don't know what it means. We don't know what it means. I don't know. I don't even come close to appreciating what it means to give your life for Christ. But by God's grace, I want to be that bold. I may not ever be at the tip of a spear on a foreign shore somewhere proclaiming Jesus Christ is the only way. That may not ever be me. I may not have to risk losing my job because I'm willing to tell somebody I love Jesus. It might cost me a friend might cost me a loved one, a relationship. But by God's grace, I want that boldness. I want to be part of God's goal. I want to be like Stephen. I want to be a man that when I see my Savior face to face, he says, well done. You are faithful. Don't lose sight of the fact Satan has a plan for you. You being here, it's, it's not by chance. The things that happen in your life that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you see a devil under every bush. Yeah, 
He's everywhere. He is under every bush. He's behind every, every circumstance, just as is God. So is God. When we can live this radically, the church grows, the church prospers. Discipleship goes to a whole nother level. Because we're in a place where we've said, you're God, I'm with you. Do whatever you want. It's not about me anymore. If you would, just bow your head with me for a moment. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to worship. I'm, I have no desire to try and manipulate you into responding to Christ. That's one of the beauties about the gospel. It stands on its own. It doesn't need me to hard sell it or soft sell it to you. But when you sit in the reality of these truths, you should have one of two responses. You either agree with it and it should stir your soul so much that you cannot hold back the hallelujahs. Or you should wrestle and struggle with it to where you can't even speak and you sit in silence. I was at the night of worship last week and I was amazed at the presence of God in this place. And I don't say this to judge anybody, but what amazes me even more is how often we can just kind of stand in silence while worshiping Jesus. That amazes me. It amazes me that we can make more noise at a football game or over a plate of food, be more excited than we are about the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That by his scars and stripes and wounds, we are healed. Just amazes me. I've been there. I struggle with that too. I ask for one thing, Father. I ask that we would just respond to you this morning. As we close in this final song. Jesus, you know our hearts. You search out those deep, deep places you declare in Isaiah 1 you're not interested in our offerings of worship and our sacrifice you don't want the praise of us just singing to you when our hearts our hearts are not laid bare before you in repentance and in adoration and in love please keep us from going through the motions today if we need to move towards you then move us thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the life of Stephen. I thank you for the example of the early church and the apostles. I apologize for not representing you better this morning. I'm unworthy to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm grateful you allow me to be a mouthpiece and I trust that you'll work in spite of me, not because of me. And I pray all this in the glorious, matchless name that has been echoed from eternity past and will be shouted through eternity future. The Alpha, the Omega, the King, the Lion of Judah, the only true God, worthy, worthy of all praise. You alone, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. 
I pray 